Hi, thanks for tuning into the fourth episode of my podcast. This episode is going to cover traveling through some small towns in Guatemala, including a very high elevation mountain town, um, some places with some gorgeous swimming holes, and then on to Lake Atitlan, which is a very well-known, very gorgeous lake, huge lake in Guatemala. This podcast consists of me reading my old journal from when I was 25 traveling in uh, Central America. Um, and as I've said before, it's also me kind of rediscovering this journal. This particular part of my journal was missing for a good few years. And even before that, I hadn't read it for a long time. So I think I haven't read these in over a decade. So as I'm reading, I'm kind of rediscovering lots of these memories. And uh, I hope you enjoy listening. So here's the next instalment. El Mirador had a bit of a sad postscript, though. When we were all showering and enjoying our rooms and beds, Martin found that his money had been stolen from out of his backpack. He came to tell me and Richard, and we too found that a little money had been taken from us, but some had also been left behind. We consulted Stefan and Lisa and Erwan as well. Each of them had also lost a small amount of money, although Martin was by far the worst hit, having lost about $140. We were dreading telling Henry about it, but it had to be done as we felt he ought to know that his house wasn't safe for storing his tour group's valuables. So after some debate, we called him up and asked him to meet us in the bar opposite our hotel. When he arrived, we offered him a drink and he refused, so we decided to just plough right in and tell him. Lisa was our spokesperson as she was the only native Spanish speaker among us. Henry was quite devastated by the news and immediately asked for a swig of Lisa's beer and a pull on her cigarette. He was very angry as he was obviously assuming it had been someone in his own family, even though we told him that the whole street had seen us unloading our packs into his house. He wanted to go and speak to his family and he wanted to take us with him, so he paid for a taxi for all of us to go over there and explain what had happened. We had an excruciating time with his mother crying and Henry too almost in tears at one point. But we felt like his wife and mother weren't actually being very helpful as they both just kept denying that it possibly could have happened, saying that they'd been in the house the whole five days. However, they admitted that they had put our bags out in the garden for an hour one day while they'd rearranged the living room and sprayed for cockroaches. But we didn't think that this was the answer, as each of our bags had been opened and then very carefully repacked, um, which wasn't the work of an opportunist passing in the street, it didn't seem like. It also ruled out the two kids, as they were far too young to be able to do this um, so discreetly. Anyway, Henry offered to pay us all back out of his own pocket, but we refused, saying that all we wanted was for them to be aware that it had happened. We returned to our hotel feeling really bad. After another two days or so relaxing in Flores with Martin, Richard and I struck out again on our own. We had decided to take the backdoor route to Huehuetenango, which would take about four days and three overnight stops, as it involved taking very bad mountain roads through the middle of nowhere. But it would give us a real taste of what Guatemala was like and the scenery was supposed to be beautiful. The first leg involved taking our first chicken bus, as they're known, to Poptun and changing there for another bus to Fray Bartolomé de las Casas. We were pleased to find that our bus really did have some chickens on it, but in spite of people being crammed in three to a seat and standing in the aisle, we felt we'd actually suffered worse crushing on trains in London. A highlight of our first trip was passing a bus wreck. Our driver actually got out to inspect the bus, the front and top of which was completely smashed in. We then passed another bus which seemed to have four bullet holes in its front window. <laughs> we spent the night in Fray Bartolomé, which was a small town arranged along one straight road with some lovely mountains in the background. After checking into a hotel, we ordered a meal in the restaurant where a man with a gun in his belt was having a meal. 
It was a real change of vibe after the tourist-filled town of Flores. The next day we took another chicken bus to Lanquin to stop off and see the caves and Chamuk Champay. The mountains in this area were really lovely, really lush and green and dramatic. The land seemed very volcanic, like an extremely crumpled piece of cloth, with hundreds of separate small peaks. The most amazing vista we saw was a ring of tall, jagged mountains surrounding a lower plateau, which in itself was made up of many more little peaks, like an upturned egg carton. The journey to Lanquin took an interesting turn when we were deposited at the side of the road with several other passengers in the middle of nowhere to await a connection. The connection turned out to be a cattle truck. We loaded our packs in and joined the other passengers standing and holding onto the sides. We were happy to try out a cattle truck, but also happy that it was only for 20 minutes or so. I do remember the, the discomfort of this, even though you could kind of hold on to things. Um, you were constantly being jolted and smashed into kind of metal bars in the back of the truck, so it was kind of painful. At Lankin, we were met by a local who told us that three other gringos were awaiting a ride to Shamuk. We could all take a pick-up together to the Hostel Maria, which was only 10 minutes walk from the pools. This place is famous for kind of freshwater pools of really gorgeous green water. So we waited with two Americans and a Canadian called Devon, and then hopped in the back of a pickup. We passed a couple of tourists who were bravely hiking the hilly terrain to Maria's. When we arrived, it was all very relaxed, and we took dorm beds and ate a couple of pricey sandwiches. The hostel was nice and convenient for the pools, but you had a captive audience there and you had to eat in the pricey restaurant unless you brought your own food. Deciding to visit the pools the next day, Richard and I contented ourselves the first day with a dip in the river, which wound slowly past Maria's. We walked as far as a little suspension bridge that overlooked the very pretty views of the mountains and river, and underneath that we tested the water. It was cold but very refreshing, and the current downriver was quite strong, so we just kept walking upriver for a short distance and then swimming back at top speed. Then we returned to Maria's and swung in hammocks, eventually getting into a conversation with a drunk American called Jacob, who revealed that it was St. Patrick's Day. We ate a dinner of chicken and rice and vegetables, then joined a table where a game of shithead, the card game, was going on. We brought over our cards and joined in. Devon was playing along with a Danish woman, an English girl, Susanna, her Indian boyfriend, Indra, and then me, Richard, and Jacob. It turned out that Susanna was from Brighton, but we didn't have any mutual acquaintances. We had a great evening playing cards and sharing a bottle of rum in honour of St. Patrick. In the morning, we got into our swimsuits, grabbed our inner tubes, and headed up the road for the pools of Chimuk Champay. The place was truly beautiful. A path from the entrance led past various pools of green and turquoise water surrounded by trees, mountains and ferns. At the very far end was the entrance to the tunnel, where the river thundered underground and actually flowed beneath the fairy tale pools on the limestone shelf above. It was a magical spot, the water was so powerful and flowed out of a gorgeous ravine where tangled vegetation hung dramatically and colourful birds swooped past dangling vines. The sun hadn't quite come through yet, but we all plunged into the water anyway. Devon was showing off, climbing up near vertical ravine walls and swinging from a tree high above the water before dropping in. When I got cold, I ate my sandwiches on the fern-covered banks and watched Richard trying to get up the courage for the ravine wall jumps of various heights. A group of local men and boys were collecting weeds from the bottoms of each pool and piling it onto floating platforms, although we couldn't tell if they were collecting it to use or sell for some reason or if they were just caretakers of the pools. People from Maria's came and went, as did other tourists from Guatemala as well as abroad. There was a fun atmosphere. The Americans handed out slices of pineapple. 
Eventually, Richard and I got tired and headed back to Maria's. Richard had a nap while I wrote in my journal in the hammock. When Richard got up and we had an hour to kill before dinner, we decided to take another dip in the river. We took two inner tubes up to the bridge and then commenced a very slow float back down the river to Maria's. We'd been warned that it was very slow, but it was lovely to sit back in the ring and watch the trees drifting past and listening to the evening bird calls. One tree had hundreds of nests in it, like socks with a ball in the toe hanging from the branches. We drifted past the odd local worker, lazing on the bank or washing in the water. One guy had quite a long chat with Richard as we were passing by so slowly. At points we would slowly revolve in our rings to get a 360-degree view of the river and mountains, and at one point Richard was carried quite far ahead of me until he got stuck on a rock and waited for me to catch up. After a while I found it wasn't as relaxing as I'd expected, as I couldn't shake the image of a crocodile snapping at me from underneath. When we reached Maria's we paddled ourselves over to the bank. I passed right underneath a little boy who was playing in a tree overhanging the water. We ate another dinner and then retired to bed. I awoke with quite severe stomach pains and we decided to skip seeing the caves and just head straight for Coban, which was the next stop on our journey to Huehuetenango. We caught a minibus to Lanking Town and the driver told us he was going on to Coban at 12 in two hours' time. We stupidly paid him then and there and decided to wait in town for two hours. We saw several services leave for Coban in the meantime and cursed ourselves for being pushed into waiting for 12 o'clock. There was nothing much to do in Lankin except admire the surrounding mountains and when it began to rain we took shelter near a town hall of some sort where a man gave us two chairs to sit on. That's really nice. Eventually our friend with the minibus turned up again and we were jammed in with about 28 other people in a vehicle made for 12. We made it to Coban in great discomfort and took a cheap room. It was a fairly undistinguished town, nothing much to report. In the morning I had more stomach pain and an upset stomach, so I glugged down some Pepto-Bismol for the day's journey. We caught a chicken bus to Uspantan, which was a poor but fairly charming small town in the mountains. There we took another room and ate some chicken and rice. We also bought some bin liners and lined our backpacks with them, as from now on our packs would almost always be travelling on the tops of buses, and the rainy season was getting underway. All the bus travel we did in Mexico, they had luggage areas underneath the seating area, as most coaches do in the UK and America, as far as I'm aware. Um, But yeah, Central America, there was a lot of uh, luggage strapped on the top of buses. The hotel staff told us there was a bus to the next town, Sacapulas, at about 6am, so we got an early night and left for the bus stop at 5.30 in the cold mountain morning. It was Sunday, and we arrived at Sacapulas along with many pickups, bringing people and produce to the market. We arrived at eightish, had a coffee, and made inquiries about buses to Huehuetenango. To our annoyance, there wasn't going to be a bus until 2pm, so we headed out to the main road hoping for a lift of some sort. Several people were waiting there for rides, including a German guy who we chatted to a bit. He had been waiting two hours for a ride already. Then, after about 45 minutes, a pickup offered a ride as far as Aguacatan, about halfway to Huehuetenango. We got in, just relieved to be going somewhere. The German, Richard and I, shared the space with one local guy and an indigenous family of husband, wife, daughter and baby. The wife sat on my backpack next to me, feeding the baby. Her daughter sat on my feet. We passed over numerous badly deforested hills, their peaks and ridges brutally shorn down into flat areas for development and farming. There was more bare earth than anything else. 
The road we were on seemed to be under construction. At several points, we had to wait for workmen to move their trucks and diggers. Eventually, we reached Aguacatan and were dropped off by the bustling market where we saw numerous different indigenous costumes. There was an anarchic bus stop where the ancient chicken buses came and went amid the crush of ever-moving people. A bus bound for Huehuetenango came almost immediately and we were on our way again. At Huehuetenango bus station, we were beset with yells as people tried to herd us onto various buses. Finally, I heard a yell of Todos Santos and yelled back, See! A man wearing the traditional Todos Santos traje pointed towards the oldest and most battered bus of all. A traje is, um, that means like traditional dress. A lot of these small towns in uh, rural parts of Mexico and Guatemala have very distinctive um, traditional outfits that are chain- that vary from town to town. After fighting our way to the public toilets and back, we loaded our backpacks onto the top of the bus and climbed aboard. The bus began its slow crawl out of Huehuetenango and into the mountains. Thick fog or cloud enveloped us. I was vaguely aware that I could smell exhaust fumes, and then I noticed that there were actually clouds of the stuff billowing up through the floor of the bus, especially at the back where Richard and I were sitting. The temperature in the bus seemed to rise with the noxious fumes, and we fumbled at the window. All of the windows except for one were nailed shut. Eventually we stopped to let some people off, and Richard and I changed to some slightly less fumey seats. After two more unpleasant hours, we arrived in Todos Santos with blackened noses, gasping for some fresh air. We got out of the bus, and to find ourselves in such a traditional town was something of a shock. Everybody was in traditional dress, the men in stripy red or purple trousers, a stripy woven shirt and a little round hat, and women in dark wraparound skirts with woven and embroidered blouses. We asked a man who was standing nearby where to find the Hotelito Todos Santos, but he didn't seem to understand. He just kept repeating that we were in Todos Santos, but it was a small place and we saw a sign to the hotel almost immediately. There was a little girl of about eight or nine who showed us to our room. We went out in search of a restaurant as we were really hungry after a day of travelling. The two places mentioned in our guidebook turned out to be closed, as in permanently boarded up, so we went back to our hotel and ate fried chicken, then went straight to bed. The next morning we awoke to a gorgeous view across to a mountain ridge opposite our hotel. It was an absolutely freezing day, clear, crisp and wintry, but we went out for a look around. This is this town is quite high up in the mountains. Um, it's the first time, one of the only times I've ever had altitude sickness, and that's why it was so cold. There was one main commercial street in the town with a small elevated concrete park at one end and a town hall type council building. The town was set in a small valley and it had steeply sloping cobbled streets. We stopped in at a tiny shop called Rebecca's Place, a cafe that also sold reasonably priced books in English and had everything from travel writing to James Joyce and William Faulkner. There we got talking to Diego, coordinator of the Nuevo Amanacer Spanish School. He was very nice and talking to him we got quite excited about studying there. We also asked his advice about seeing a doctor in the town should our temperamental stomachs get any worse and he mentioned a couple of possibilities. Richard made an appointment to meet him in a few hours to visit a local herbalist and we retired to our hotel for a rest. While I wrote in my journal, Richard had a nap and then went to find the Quarandera, that's a um, healer. The first one they tried, an 80-year-old woman, was away working on the plantations. Wow. And the second lady was also out. We ate some dinner and then went out to see a film about the town that was being shown at one of the other language schools. On the way there, we passed two men crying loudly in the street. It was quite strange. 
One was a fairly old man who could have been drunk, but the other was a youngish boy, late teens, and he was really howling. He was surrounded by other locals who were looking on rather impassively. We watched the movie, which was useful in pointing out just how poor the town really was and highlighting the problems that a lot of the men develop with alcohol. It also talked about the injustices of plantation work that many men and some women take on at times during the year. On the way back to the hotel, we passed an extremely drunk man crawling up the road. We couldn't tell if it was the older guy from earlier or not. In the morning, I woke feeling very much like I was getting flu. I had a very sore throat and a bad cough. Richard and I headed over to try the second healer's house again. It was a longish walk and my illness combined with the altitude meant that I really struggled. Eventually we came to the house where a ferocious dog snarled on a chain and pigs and sheep grunted and bleated in a pen. There were several women standing around the sink washing clothes outside. It was freezing. And a boy tending to the animals. They called their mother, a sympathetic and friendly woman who brought out two chairs for us to sit on in the courtyard at the back of the house. We told her our issues and she sent one of the girls out to pick some leaves. She then disappeared inside to brew up some tea and was gone for about 40 minutes. We watched a hen who was tied by her leg to the wall. All of a sudden she stood up and revealed three tiny chicks that she was keeping warm underneath her body. They kept us amused for a while, emerging to run about at top speed and then duck back underneath for warmth. Two of the younger women of the house came out and began weaving with backstrap looms. That's that's a type of um, portable loom that, that women use a lot in this part of the world where you attach one end to a wall or a tree, um, a strap goes around your back and you can just kind of weave uh, on the strings that are in front of you. It was something that every female in Todos Santos did seemingly without exception. A bedraggled grey chicken came and fell asleep next to one of the weaving girls, still standing up and with its head tucked under its wing. Finally, the healer came back out with a plastic bottle full of hot brownish tea. She poured us a cup to try on the spot. It was very nice. Then she went and got us another handful of leaves that she said were eucalyptus for my sore throat. She instructed me to drink the tea from my stomach and inhale eucalyptus steam for my cough. We went home to bed. Richard popped to Rebecca's place to buy me a book, The Beautiful and Damned, which I read in two days while I was bedbound. But later in the day, I was feeling even worse and coughed so much that I lost my voice. So we went to see Diego and he took us to a local doctor who gave us antibiotics for our stomachs and rehydration salts. He was really nice and didn't charge us anything. And he allayed our fears about the flu symptoms being some nasty parasite-related illness that I might have contracted in the jungle. I began my antibiotics that evening, but Richard decided to wait and see how he did the next day. Anyway, the next four days were miserable. I spent most of the time in bed. I had a spaced out feeling where my own voice sounded distorted and very far away. On about the third or fourth day, I woke up with a very sore and aching ribs from coughing so much. I felt completely battered. On the fourth day, I dragged myself round to a nearby hotel to eat as we were tired of eating in our hotel restaurant. I'd had no appetite at all and the previous day had tried to eat a bowl of soup and only managed half of it. We had a couple of rather disgusting sandwiches and got chatting to three Dutch people at the next table. The man had been considering El Mirador and was fascinated by our description of the hike. He suggested that my cough might actually be altitude sickness, a problem he had experienced somewhere else. Whether it was flu or altitude, we were beginning to realise that it would probably help me to get better if we left Todos Santos. We'd read about Spanish courses in San Pedro La Laguna, which were considerably cheaper and in a more sunny climate. We decided to just go as soon as I was well enough to travel. 
Richard spent the next day hanging around with the Dutchman and we played the odd game of Scrabble at Rebecca's place. We decided to leave the next day. I'd made a bad decision that morning to stop taking my antibiotics. I'd felt that my stomach was pretty much already recovered when I began taking them and that they might have been affecting my body's ability to fight the cough that by now was the main problem I was experiencing. But that evening after missing two of the antibiotics, my diarrhoea returned violently, much worse than it had ever been before. I started the antibiotics again, having to use up half of Richard's unwanted ones to complete a whole course. Yeah, that's the um, last time I ever stopped a course of antibiotics um, before the appointed time. (laughs) Getting ill with stomach issues is something that came up in my graphic novel, Follow Me In, which was about the first part of this trip through Mexico. Uh, We were ill on and off, uh, certainly for the first few months of that leg of the trip. Uh, And I I wrote about in the book at one point, I spent the night in hospital because I had uh, gastroenteritis and I had to be on a drip. Um, but then after a while, after a few months of travel in Mexico, we it stopped happening and we were really hopeful that we'd develop some kind of immunity to the local bacteria or some kind of tolerance. But then as soon as we crossed the border out of Mexico and into these new countries, it started happening again. So we left Todos Santos after a week, having achieved nothing at all. We travelled to Huehuetenango with a couple who were always laughing and plied me with Hall's throat pastels. At Weiwei, we decided against trying to reach San Pedro that night and travelled on as far as Shela with the laughing couple. There we found a room, bewildered to be in a large city again after so long. In a way, it was nice to be somewhere where we could get any type of food we wanted after eating chicken rice and tortillas every single day in the mountains. We went out and got a pizza and brought it back to our hotel room where I devoured as much as I could manage, three slices, before falling into an exhausted sleep. In the morning, we caught a minibus to the bus station and another bus which would take us to the lake. It was pretty awful carrying my pack when I felt so ill, but I was just relieved to be out of Todos Santos in the cold. On the bus, we met an Englishman with a Japanese girlfriend who was also heading for the lake. We got to Panahachel, Gringo Tenango, (laughs) in brackets, that's what it's known as. Um, Colourful, relaxed, sunny and swarming with foreigners. Um... This part of Guatemala, there's a, an enormous, really stunning lake, um, Atitlan, um, surrounded by different little towns, some of which are kind of almost entirely locals and some of which have been kind of taken over by foreigners. Um, Panahachel is the jumping off point where you get to all the other little ones. Um, and I don't know if it's Panahachel or another nearby one, but one is kind of famous for hippies, hippie stuff. There's like loads of yoga and meditation and stuff there. And that might come up in my journal in a minute. I think I'm going to leave the reading there. I know the next section is quite a long one about the lake. So um, I'll come back to that in the next episode. Um, As ever, you can find all my stuff at my website, katrinachapman.com. That's K-A-T-R-I-O-N-A. And tune in next week to find out um, about Lake Atitlan.